Anyone who knows better that hears me proclaim that creating a winery from the ground up is a lot of work will undoubtedly say that's an understatement. It, like most entrepreneurial ventures, can mean walking into uncharted territory. But entrepreneurship is at the core of the American dream. It's driven by an innate need to create, build, and grow. It requires an underlying positivity that enables you to see beyond the day-to-day -day challenges, the roadblocks, and even the failures. In the case of Brett Ernest, his burning desire to succeed meant sleeping on a small futon in the winery he started. He showered at the local gym, and he lived 24-7 in the building that held his entire life by a small, very thin thread. Welcome to Tin City Limits, the show that shares the unique stories of the artisans and entrepreneurs that make up the Paso Robles neighborhood known as Tin City. My name is Mark Wilson, and my co-host Andrew Jones and I arrive mid-afternoon at Levo Winery. As we enter Levo's tasting room, we're greeted by Brett Ernest himself. He's young, enthusiastic, and he's got the energy of a man on a mission. As we begin our interview, we learn that Tin City was more than just a destination for Brett. It might have been the thing that saved his business. This place has been a blessing. Like, honestly, I... Like I said, we would have folded the brand in 14 had we not found this place, um, honestly. And, and, and why was that? It We were just buying fruit and paying doing business at the at, at what it costs to make something where you're custom farming mm -hmm. buying barrels that are you know expensive and just do trying to do everything the right way and when you say it it means one thing but when you actually truly do it and you look at your bank account you're like holy shit and we got to that point really quick about after three vintages, which is when you get your first wine to sell, but you're three deep and mm -hmm. you're like, Oh my God, we've done three vintages and we're going to sell our first bottle. And that was 2014. And, you know, my dad's my business partner, like me and him love wine. And, uh, he's a huge inspiration to me. And like, um, we just do everything together and it's a, been a really fun experience, but he was like, dude, this isn't working. We can't continue to sell bottles for 12 bucks a bottle when we do this kind of stuff. And so anyway, we, you got close, we got close. And then we got this place, which was saved our, saved our asses. And now we get amazing people to walk through the door every weekend. And every bottle's a vote to, uh, keep us with the lights on essentially. You were going to say something? Yeah, so um, I, I had one of those epiphany meetings when it's like, this thing needs to get real. Or kind of totally not real. Get real. And, uh, um, I, I always remember where I was at when I had that. I was um, I was in a Starbucks off of uh, Coffee Road in Santa Rosa um, with my two college roommates that are my partners on things. Like, where were you and your dad at when you had that meeting because that like that when you have that conversation for the first time you look at the books and you see the spreadsheet and it just like it doesn't make sense talk about your gut just kind of dropping yeah and you see the numbers and you're like you when you do three vintages um and you, and then you sell your first bottles or you try to and it and the first bottle you sell is 12 bucks you're like oh mama and then i think i got an 84 <laughs> from wine spectator and i was like okay this is not going to go the way I'd ex I had expected. And so I remember the day that we saw that was um, 
I was living at my buddy's place in Santa Barbara in Goleta. And um, I was roommates with this guy named Spencer Daly. He worked at Andrew Murray. And four lunatics shared one house. And we all made wine or beer or something. And, um, and yeah, we, me and my dad spoke about it. And we were just, he was like, dude, like, we got to either figure out a different, you know, buy cheaper fruit, buy cheaper barrels, figure out a different business plan, or we got to find a direct-to-consumer. And so I immediately started calling everybody I knew. And at the time, I'd make, I made wine in uh, San Miguel. Uh, at my buddy's place in, called San Marcos Creek at the time, which has been bought. And I was at a real transition. We didn't know how much fruit we were going to buy. We didn't know if we were going to continue with our fruit and, and our contracts. And I remember getting a beer with my buddy at Barrel House. And I saw Guillaume walk into his building, which hadn't had a, a la- like a, a, a banner yet. It didn't say close to Len. I know Andrew was in here. And I think Desperado was building her place out, and so was Wineshine. And everything else was kind of like just a field. And I remember being like, holy shit. I walked in there and I saw Guillaume and I was like, and then I looked over and I saw like Bailey was at her place and I saw, uh, Patrick and I think, uh, uh, what was it? First crush was here. The building, Negranti wasn't here. It was just flat and it, it, there was nothing here, Mm -hmm. but I remember being like, okay, Andrew Jones is here. Um, Brian Terese, I think. And I just saw kind of the skeleton of people that were here. And I was like, this might be it. Because uh, Buellton didn't work. Solvang didn't work. It was too expensive. It was like four bucks a square foot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is like a place where you can have your production, a tasting room. You can connect people to the production. You can connect people to what you're doing. Right, right. And it, that was it. That was the moment. That so was, I was the like, turning yeah. point. And so I called Mike English like a hundred times. like literally and then he was like i have this one building and i was like making 800 cases and he's like this is 7500 square feet do you want it and i was like what the hell i was like there's no way and then and then and then i was like you know what i was like i looked at los olivos and solving pricing and i was like okay there's actually a way i'm gonna sleep in my office (laughs) so i'm wait 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 wait. (laughs) you're gonna literally sleep in your office yeah we had three offices and I was like, dude, we got one I can work in. One's going to be my room. And then I got like this sweet, you know, production room with floor drain. So that's my shower. And I was like, I'm dialed. My girlfriend didn't like it, but I was See, like. Oh. <laughs> this is the kind of thing. I mean, when you go to entrepreneurship, that's the kind of thing we talk about a lot on the show is guys like you who literally are willing to do just about anything to see your vision through. Yeah. You know, it, it, we're not talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars where you're going to build that and, oh, you're building the house at the same time. And you, you, you're you going to come into this situation and you're going to live in an office, basically. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming on a couch or a... Yeah, it was, it was a futon. And, dude, futon. it was honestly really... I'll tell you what. Like, it was really fun. I mean, like, my girlfriend hated yeah, fun, it. Fun then or fun looking when you look back on it now? It oh, was, yeah, that was fun. The one thing that was weird was waking up where you work all day. Yeah, so yeah. I always felt like the twilight zone because I never really left for, like, two years. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was super fun. I mean, my girlfriend hated it. At times, I wasn't super stoked on it because I was showering at Kennedy Fitness, and I got really familiar with all the older guys over there. And, you know, it was just a weird, a little bit weird not having your own, like, bathroom, I guess. But, like... I'll tell you what, dude, like I look back and I'm like, that was really fun. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, I got a, 
Tin City was just in in his infancy, so everyone yeah. was here all the time, yeah. and it was just a lot of fun. So, yeah. I, I, maybe this is a dumb question, but no. how 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 did that experience contribute to your winemaking? Did it make you a better winemaker? More? I mean, did it add to that discipline that you were talking about? Um, I mean, because you're here, you're you're living it. You're not you're not yeah. driving into work every day. You're you're here. Yeah. No, it made me. Like, for instance, yeah, I had a Chardonnay that wouldn't go through Mallow, so I was turning on the heated blankets every 12 hours, like, probably ridiculously, like... But, but no, actually, you know, when you're around your wines too much, you, f- you mess with them too much. I think that getting away from your wines and letting them do their thing is, is a smart thing, so... Um, but yeah, I mean, it was good. It was good. I was connected to the company. I was in the tasting room every day. I was topping my wines at least every three weeks because I had nothing else to do. But like, other than that, like, yeah, it was uh, it was a good time. But I. So when do we notice the business starting to turn on? Then the next conversation with your dad when he said, "You know what? This is good." So. Yeah. Yeah, we were. Let's see, what was that? We moved in June of 2015. And I'm trying to think of when stuff, probably by the end of 2015, I wasn't like cashing in big time, but I also was paying all my bills. You could see that it was going to work. Yeah. Or you you felt more confident. Yeah. Like, like the coolest part is the wine club, right? I mean, we have awesome wine club members and we were starting to get some wine club members. When I first moved in here, I had like my grandma, my mom and my dad in my wine club. And (laughs) if they didn't get their Man, I would be calling them like, what the hell, dude? You're my whole company. And, uh, yeah, and then after the end of the first year, we were like, dude, we got a little bit of a wine club. And and I think that for anybody who's a wine club member, whether you're a wine club member with me or somebody else, you keep the lights on. And and um, that's what I always tell people when they, when they sign up for my wine club. I'm like, I would not yep. be here if you didn't have this little vote of support for me. And so... Um, so, that was a humbling experience to get a wine club. Getting to Paso Robles was the culmination of a journey that saw Brett playing football in Santa Barbara. But his origins are a testament to the idea that those who are called to make art from grapes can come from all walks of life. Oh, I'm from Idaho, room, like number one. So, I mean, I'm from nowhere where you should ever right. appreciate wine. And my family was not the people who were minute. like opening Napa cabs. I'm from Michigan, and what I knew from wine before I moved to California 20 years ago was wine in a box. Yeah. Or a fine Lambrusco. Lambrusco is great. I'm actually with a little With a little 7-Up in it, just to give you, okay? Hey. I think they call that a spritzer. I'm not sure. That's like the Frappuccino of wine. (laughs) (laughs) So your experience, I'm guessing, in Idaho was probably, could be maybe similar or maybe a little more sophisticated than that. Not at all. Um, (laughs) It was was interesting because I first got into wine when I was in high school and every high schooler needs beer money. And I kept going to my mom for 20 bucks or whatever. And then they were like... I was like, dude, you got to get a job. And our our my one of my buddy's good good friends owned a winery in Idaho, which to most people would be like, why the hell do you have a winery in Idaho? Exactly. But, but those two things don't go together. They really don't. But I was so naive, I didn't know at the time, and so I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to go 
work for this place and I did and while I was in high school I was probably 18 years old and I was like dude I really like this I like the craft I like the idea that there's farming and and I saw all these guys in California making some epic wines and they're young guys and I was like hey I know that Idaho doesn't have great quality but I know that I love this craft and then I was like I gotta get to California and I gotta go learn how to make wine so so you knew that Idaho didn't have great quality not at the time. I know. I knew enough. You just didn't see the Idaho wines and wine spectator. Yeah, exactly. Like I knew that. I knew. I know that Idaho, and I know that most states. At the end of the day, they'll find the varietal that works for them. But like, I didn't want to wait around or be the pioneer for forty years. It was like, I'm going to dump. I didn't have money, so I was like. I'm not going to dump all this money into a property, plant all these varietals, and realize that they all suck. I wanted to come somewhere where they'd been building the industry since Prohibition. Mm-hmm. They knew what areas grew great, mm-hmm. and and just kind of like not buy property, get my foot in the door in some cool vineyards, and really try to make something that was special. And that was California, and and not only that, that's where all the universities were to make wine. And I was like, dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to California. And so I, I moved from Idaho to California when I was 19, and um, where, and the whole idea was like in my yearbook, in my high school yearbook, I said I want to make wine. And like I was 19 or eight, no, I was 18. I graduated young, but I was like, I want to make wine. And people were like, what the hell? Even my parents were like, what the hell are you talking about? But, uh, but anyway, they would have understood it. beer perhaps. I loved beer. I, but I'm still not, interested in beer, but, but not wine. No. I, that would have been more predictable or potato vodka for that matter. But, potato uh, vodka. Do you have potatoes in Idaho? Tons of potatoes and potato vodka is becoming super, super, super popular. But, um, but anyway, I thought that, um, I mean, had, had, Brett, I'm sorry. Had you, had you even had a really great wine at the age of 19? So I was super fortunate. I had some next-door neighbors. Is my best friend's parents. They were Italian. His mom, would, on Sundays, would wake up, get all her vegetables from the garden, and she would make these insane, like, classic-like Italian dishes. Mm-hmm. And while I was growing up with my buddy, Dom, he, she would she would get, like, they would open up like cayuse, man, like Walla Walla, like cayuse when I was like 18 and they'd let us taste, like taste it. And I was like, what? And then I would look on wine spectator and I was like, Oh my God, I'm like this. And I was like, like, even though I was young, I was like, they wouldn't let me drink, but they were like, man, like try this. And I was like, cayuse, man, this is crazy. shit." (laughs) And so I was like, I gotta, I gotta get to like either Walla Walla or I gotta, gotta get to California and um, and I looked at Google Images and I saw Santa Barbara and I was like, if I don't like this, then I'm something's seriously wrong with me. And so I, I ended up moving. But, so but yeah, I, I drank some good stuff. Like I mean, they they opened up like yeah, Cayuse and Gorman and like all this cool like Washington stuff. And I was like eighteen, nineteen. Like what what is this? And so you pack your stuff up. Mm-hmm. You're nineteen years old and you you hop a train to Santa Barbara. Yeah, here we are. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually really funny. Um, my dad, my my dad was into it. My mom was like, kind of like, "Why are you doing this?" And my dad's a pilot, and 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 it, he had a little small like one eighty two at the time, a Cessna. And mm-hmm. so I put all my. He's like, "I have weight and balance issues," so I like literally just packed the bare minimum, went to Santa Barbara, and my dad, my dad and I flew down there, and he literally just like unloaded me in a small plane and was like all right see ya have a good day have a good day and so i loaded and and the coolest part is my best friend from high school was already there and so we played on the football team there 
uh, at Santa Barbara City College for a couple of years, and um, and yeah, I worked on wi- at wineries on the off season, and on and when I was playing football, I wouldn't you know obviously be working, but whenever I could, I'd be out pruning vines and doing whatever I could. So, did you know right away that this is it? I mean, did you did you have that feeling that I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing this? Um, no, not really. I was really young and I was just kind of like, man, this is really cool. And, and I was like, I, I really wanted to see if I truly enjoyed it. What did you like about it? Um, I like that you can use all your senses and I like the idea that when you're making wine, um, it's all about your intuition. I like the idea that, um, it's never the same twice. I think that's what differentiated beer from wine to me. Mm-hmm. I think the beer is amazing and I drink a lot of beer, but I, the one thing I don't like about it is that you know what it's going to taste like once you have the recipe, wine, you never know. And I love that. I love that if I if I make wine for the next 40 years, like you you only get 40 vint, 40 50 vintages if right, you're lucky. Right. And then and then so you're always new at it. You can't you can make if you're a baker, you make bread every day. If you're a winemaker, you make wine 40 times, 50 times if you're lucky. So it's always new, and you never know. You never know. Does yeah. it always get better, or, or does it go backwards sometimes? It goes backwards a lot, but yeah. it goes forward too. I mean, it's just that's what I like about it. Is a lot. There's it, the stakes are high, and you never really know what you're going to get. So it's like some years are great, and so, and and you learn a lot, and some years you're like it's the same. So coming up, successes, failures. And more with Brett Ernest from Levo Wines. When Tin City Limits continues after this. Making something from nothing isn't always easy. That means looking down a road that others tell you not to take and taking it anyway. It's knowing where you come from and knowing where you're going without ever being sure you'll actually get there. It takes fierce loyalty, perseverance, courage, and an unwavering commitment to doing things right. Tin City Cider's made of these things, built on the dogged work ethic and the humble nature of their three owners, who spend their best days turning apples into art. Tin City Cider's crafted with an appreciation for Mother Nature's hard labor, with the sunlight on the trees and the roots seeking minerals. So the next time you're looking for a hard cider that emboldens the spirit of every craftsman that's ever made anything good, crack open a Tin City Cider. See them online at tincitycider.com or visit their tap room at Tin City in Paso Robles. Tin City Cider Company, the ultimate cider experience. Welcome back to Tin City Limits and our conversation with Brett Ernest of Levo Wines. After spending some time making wine with a small family operation in Portugal where he found himself thinking, hey, I think I can do this. The next question for Brett is one that I both love and hate to ask. It just seems so expected, and maybe it's trivial, but the answers we get are always somewhat telling. I went to Portugal, didn't go to school anymore, and right when I landed, I got a job at Car Winery in uh, Santa Barbara. Sure. And um, and he had a vineyard management company, so I worked for three years on his vineyard crew. And uh, what you learn there? A lot. I learned work ethic. A. I mean, I went out. I woke up every morning at five a.m. Went to San Inez and I pruned vines from 7 a.m. 
and, and it, you work nine hour days in the vineyard. So I was with all these guys, Megalito and freaking Ruben and all these other cool guys. And we would go out there from seven or 6 AM whenever sunrise was at the time until the end of the day. And we'd prune vines. That's it. And I did that for three years from bud to cluster. And I did like Kessler Hawk and I pruned like Turner vineyard. And I did like all these other vineyards. And after three years of doing that, I was like, okay, I think that I'm ready to make some wine. Does everybody do that? Mm. I mean, or, 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 I bet Andrew's pruned a lot of vines in his day, but I don't know. I, I, you've pruned way more than me. I'm I mean, sure. and, and I was out there for, I was out there for a while, and like I was just on a crew. Like I made, I made ten bucks an hour and worked nine hour days. And, and, well, let me ask you though, what do you think that brings to your winemaking today? Does that experience have uh, any effect on what you do today and how you do it? Um. It made me realize what places I think were special, like Ballard Canyon, or I thought Santa Rita Hills was really special. And um, because the coolest part, you know, is that I worked with Ryan Carr, who owned the vineyard management company, and then we'd bu- we'd pick the same fruit that we farmed mm-hmm. and we bring it into the winery. So I kind of got to see the, the the difference between like what was going on in the vineyard and then what we made in the in the winery. And from there, I was like, dude, like these vineyards are awesome and i kind of learned the chemistry and i just got a lot like i think that time and that in that time i got a lot of dots that were connected and i was kind of like okay i can see it like portugal gave me a nice little like entree to winemaking and then once i worked in the vineyards for three years and then saw the same fruit i farmed from february until august or september in the in the winery i'd be like oh okay i get it now like that's cool i i see that we dropped fruit and did this and did whatever we did and that translated to quality in the winery and and so i think that like for my learning style that was super important because a book one showed me that and i wish i could have had that but it wasn't in the cards for me because i had like had, a 2.7 you mean, the formal education <laughs> You wish I mean, I always, it, you, I, I wanted to have that, but it just, I think there's always a thousand ways to get to where you want to be. Well, tell me though, and, or, or tell us what, how would that, how do you think that would have changed? Would you be any different winemaker? Do you think now I, any more disciplined? Any, I, mean, I, I think it would have been a lot safer and I've made a lot of mistakes in the winery because I'm kind of learning, um, learning the hard way all the time. What was your first big mistake? Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> or give us maybe the... A lot of mistakes. Um, the big one. The, the one biggest like, uh, ones were, I don't know, like cellar temperature is a big deal. And, and learning that having a cold cellar and, and keeping up on your sulfurs is a real deal. And sans souffre is uh, <laughs> something for people that uh, listen to too many podcasts. <laughs> um I could go on for a long time because I think that with how young my winery is, luckily we do barrel selection, but I've done a, I've made a, I was just talking to my friend the other day and I won't name his name, but he's going to be making wine for a really awesome winery in Santa Barbara. And they had a really big issue happen the other day at the winery. And he was like, Oh, my ego's damaged. And I said, dude, every single, you're going to make every mistake that you're, that is possible. Like, as a winemaker, you know, like, I'm going to make every bad decision and I'm going to make every mistake possible, but you learn from each one of them and then the next year you don't do it. But I've done a lot of that in the past few years and now I'm kind of starting to, like, learn to keep it simple and 
you know, I don't know if any of that makes any sense, but yeah, oh, totally keep, it, makes keep sense. it simple and like, honestly, just let the fruit do its thing and don't think too much about it. I, you know, I don't know. That'd probably be mine, but yeah, I've made every mistake in the book. I could go on for hours. I mean, I've dumped so many barrels. Um, I can't even tell you we're about to release our 2016s and I have 350 cases because I had to dump five barrels that weren't that good. And I sold another five barrels to bulk. And that's a lot to me. It's not a lot to Andrew, but that's like a lot to me, you know? And so, yeah, I, but, but, but what does go in a bottle at my winery is the best. And that's the, that's the number one thing is, although I've made a lot of mistakes when it comes to bottling day, we put or this stuff that I don't mess up in the bottle, <laughs> essentially. So. And then the question we love to ask everyone, what are you excited about? A, I think I finally made the first wine that I'm like, when you first start making wine, you're like, uh, you know, like whatever, learning a lot. But 2016 Grenache, I'm like really pumped on that wine. That was a wine that if I could make it again, I would, but I, I know I can't. So, uh, I uh, I know I won't, um, and that's what I love about wine, too, is that it's not repeatable. But our 2016 Grenache, super excited about that guy right now. I think it's a really fun wine. And um, moving forward with our project, I'm really excited about Graciano. I think that's going to be super fun. We're really committing, to, we're really yeah. committing to Petite Syrah this year. I used to just kind of make it for fun, and now I'm really, like, really going to make Petite Syrah. Like, we're... We're making enough to wear what, like, what, what me and Andrew are just talking about. I'm kind of scared about how much petite I'm making this year. <laughs> but uh, but I'm excited about it. And uh, I think that I'm going to make a lot of petite. We're making a decent amount of uh, Grenache. That's another skew I've really been excited about. And um, we're going to double our production this year, which is funny because we're going from 900 cases to 2,000 cases and that doesn't seem like a lot but it's a lot to me and so sure and then we're also going to make a lot more rosé um and that's a wine that is one of the few wines that i think economically makes sense as a winery like Mm -hmm. you know petite scary cab is kind of scary because you hold on to it for two years but rosé is a beautiful thing in that everybody wants it and uh you can bottle it in three months and then sell it so we're going to make we're going to make a lot of that, and I love making it, and I love drinking it. I think our staff drank all of it, so, I mean, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of where we're going. And uh, Congratulations. Thanks, yeah. man. You're doing well. Thank you. You're coming along. Thank you. Dad's proud of you. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think he's going to, and he's having fun, too. So we're gonna, he's going to be here in two weeks, so uh, it'll be fun, yeah. If starting a winery is about blazing new trails, about believing in yourself, your mission, and about inspiring others to participate, Bretterness is all about that. What sets people like Brett and many of the other artisans you'll find in the Tin City neighborhood, apart from the rest of us, is the will, the courage, and sometimes recklessness to actually do what they do. For more information about Brett Ernest and Levo Wines, go to levowine.com. That's L-E-V-O wine.com. For information about all the artisans in the Tin City neighborhood, log on to tincitypaso.com. Tincitypaso.com. Tin City Limits was recorded at Tin City in Paso Robles. Executive produced by Andrew Jones and Mark Wilson for Crush Media. 
Technical assistance provided by Brad Johnson. Our thanks to Brad Ernest for being a part of our show. Make sure to join us next week. For now, I'm Mark Wilson. For Andrew Jones and me, thanks for listening.